Hello, and welcome to Pin Drop World's News, the show where each week we spin the globe, drop a pin on a different country, and take a look at the big issues facing it. I'm AJ Camacho, here to guide us through today's show as we explore the news surrounding Turkey. Specifically, its president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, and his impact on the country's democracy, economy, and foreign policy, as well as Turkey's Kurdish minority. We'll be hearing from Mart Moral and Burke Essen, two experts in Turkish politics and professors at Sabanchi University in Istanbul. As always, we'll conclude with a panel of the Pindrop crew to discuss the news and what our guests had to say. But before we get into the news, it's country profile time. We don't expect you to know everything about Turkey. We certainly don't, even after this week of intense research. So. Here are some fast facts. Its capital is Ankara. Its currency is the Turkish Lira. It has a population of about 85 million people. Its official language is Turkish. Its dialing code is plus 90. Its government is a republic. And fun fact, in 2022, Turkish officials formally requested that their country be referred to by its Turkish name, Turkiye, instead of Turkey on the world stage. The stated reason was to promote tourism to the country and to disassociate the country from the North American bird, especially since Turkey is often used as slang for something foolish. Although reporting suggested that most Turks were apathetic to the formal name change, we'll do our best to accommodate and we'll refer to the country as Turkiye for most of the show. Now, time for a rundown of the country's history and politics. Our tale begins in antiquity, with the lands that would become Turkey witnessing the rise and fall of empires. From the mighty Byzantines to the powerful Ottomans, this region has been a crossroads of civilizations, a melting pot of cultures, and a stage for historical dramas. The pivotal moment arrived in 1923, when Mustafa Kemal Atatürk led the Turkish War of Independence and established the Republic of Turkey. Ataturk, often referred to as the father of the nation, indeed his name meaning father of the Turks, embarked on an ambitious program of modernization. He introduced radical reforms from adopting a new legal code to promoting secularism and women's rights. Over the decades, Turkey has faced both internal and external challenges. The country has navigated its way through military coups, economic fluctuations, and complex regional dynamics. The strategic location of Turkey has made it a key player in geopolitics, especially during the Cold War as a NATO ally of the United States. The latter half of the 20th century saw Turkey transitioning towards a multi-party political system. While the political landscape has been marked by periods of stability, there have also been moments of turbulence with shifting alliances and evolving ideologies. Fast forward to the 21st century, where Turkey continues to grapple with a range of issues. The country has faced geopolitical tensions, notably in the Middle East, and has been a significant player in discussions about the future of the European continent. The political scene in Turkey is characterized by a diverse range of political parties, each with its own vision for the nation. The balance between secularism and Islamism has been a defining aspect of political discourse, with parties like the AKP shaping the country's direction in recent years. The occasional turmoil of the last century continues in Turkish politics today as well. As recently as 2016, some military leaders attempted an ill-fated coup against President Erdogan. As we look to the future, Turkey stands at a crossroads, balancing tradition and modernity, east and west. Its political landscape remains dynamic, reflecting the diverse perspectives of its people. Now, time for a discussion of the big issues, beginning with the first, Turkey's Kurdish minority. Turkey has around 19 million Kurds living within its borders, concentrated in the country's southeast. Another 11 million Kurds or so live across parts of Armenia, Iran, Iraq, and Syria. Now, the Kurdish people and the pursuit of Kurdistan is a story for another time, and our co-producer Diego Austin will doubtlessly cover that story someday. 
But for now, let's consider the Kurds in Turkey who have had a long, sometimes violent, history of repression. Kurdish-majority areas have often been subject to strict curfews and cuts to services, according to Amnesty International. However, the Kurds have faced even more mundane challenges in daily life. Until 2014, the letters Q, W, and X were all illegal in Turkey. These letters are not needed in the Turkish language, but appear frequently in Kurdish. Accordingly, many Kurds faced hurdles in using official documents that required them to print their names. Ultimately, this law was repealed by then-Prime Minister Erdogan in 2014, but Turkey's Kurds still report being treated as second-class citizens. One of the key actors in recent Turkish-Kurdish history has been the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK. Having formed in Turkey in 1978, the PKK sought to form an independent Kurdish state and protect the rights of Kurds in Turkey. But in 1984, believing their political efforts were not progressing, the PKK began an armed insurgency against the Turkish government. In October of this year, the PKK carried out a suicide bombing in the capital of Ankara that damaged the building of the Ministry of the Interior and injured police officers. Politically speaking, the only major Kurdish party in Turkey is the HDP, which does not currently have any members in national office, but does have a significant power at the provincial and municipal levels in southeast Turkey. In 2023's elections, the HDP opted not to field a candidate for president and to back Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu of the CHP opposition party. This decision met with a mixed reaction from Kurds, and Kılıçdaroğlu's decision to cooperate with the HDP likely soured his image to many Turkish voters. In the end, Kılıçdaroğlu lost the presidential election in May, though he gained an impressive 48% of the vote against a man who hadn't faced a tough challenge since taking office in 2014, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. This brings us to our second big issue. That man, the president of Turkey, Erdogan. Indeed, the rest of our discussion of the big issues all revolves around Erdogan, who has utterly dominated Turkish politics for the last nine years, and who is set to remain president for another five years. Erdogan started out as mayor of Istanbul in the 1990s, later founding the center-right AKP party and rising through the ranks to become prime minister and, eventually, president in 2014. So let's break down Erdogan's record, starting with his foreign policy. Turkey is a member of NATO and thus a major ally to the United States. Despite this, Erdogan has charted his own course, which has, at times, bumped heads with America and NATO. After Russia launched an invasion of Ukraine, Erdogan was probably the quietest Western leader. In the months that followed, he frequently pitched Turkey as a mediator in the conflict and negotiated a deal between Russia and Ukraine to protect grain shipments leaving the Black Sea, though Russia has since abandoned this plan. But that Russia was willing to come to Turkey's table at all attests to how differently Erdogan conducts his foreign policy, despite being a NATO member. Indeed, he stalled the bids from Finland and Sweden to accede to NATO in the aftermath of Russia's invasion, claiming that Sweden was harboring members of the PKK, which Turkey, alongside the United States and the European Union, considers a terrorist organization. While Finland has since joined and Erdogan has said he will support Swedish membership, after Sweden offered promises to work towards countering terrorism in the Middle East, the Turkish president was single-handedly able to delay the expansion of NATO from what would have been a matter of a couple of months to more than a year's long process. Erdogan's foreign policy made international headlines again in October of this year when he defended Hamas in the wake of the October 7th attack against Israel. His remarks are heard here through an interpreter. Hamas is not a terrorist organization, but a group of liberators and mujahideen fighting to protect their land and their citizens. Shortly after the outbreak of the ongoing Israel-Hamas war, Erdogan said he was leading talks to try to secure the release of Israeli hostages. 
As of now, Erdogan's efforts have not yet yielded the release of any hostages. And also, his tone as a peacemaker appears to be changing somewhat. Not only did he defend Hamas, not just Palestinian civilians, but he has also recently called Israel a terrorist state. Now, let's look at Erdogan's handling of the economy, which commentator Sonar Chaptai called his Achilles heel heading into the 2023 elections. In the mid-2010s, Turkey appeared to be one of, if not the, rising economic power of the Middle East. It was, and still is, in a special customs union with the rest of Europe that has boosted its manufacturing and exports. But in 2018, the country entered a crisis as the value of the Turkish lira plummeted and, accordingly, hyperinflation set in. This meant smaller businesses could no longer afford foreign goods like fuel, food, and fertilizer that were needed for continued operations. To address this, the Turkish central bank raised interest rates to contract the monetary supply. This worked, but at the cost of many jobs in the near term, as the higher interest rates further stripped businesses. With unemployment reaching around 20%, Erdogan fired several central bank chairmen as he demanded interest rates be lowered. Erdogan thinks that keeping the lira's value low will actually help increase Turkish exports and thus domestic jobs. And economists say he's not wrong. China devalues its currency for the exact same reason and has seen notable effects. That being said, the question is whether the benefits from increased exports are worth the drawbacks of hyperinflation. And most economists would argue that's a bad trade-off. In recent months, the central bank has upped interest rates to 35%, and this has allowed inflation to ease somewhat from 85% in October of 2022 to a little over 60% in October of 2023. Finally, we reach the reason The Economist and Politico both called Turkey's 2023 elections the most important the world would face this year. Concerns over what critics call Erdogan's authoritarian tendencies. Indeed, while it is a republic, Erdogan's Turkey has taken measures that are considered beyond the democratic pale. In the 2023 election, while the votes were counted fairly, still saw the government leveraging media support so that it is not considered entirely fair. While his entire administration has been noted by his attempts to influence the media, Erdogan stepped up efforts to control social media in 2022 with a so-called disinformation law that criminalizes spreading false information online. According to the Brookings Institution, the law calls for up to four to five years imprisonment for stories and posts that, quote, spread information that is inaccurate in order to create fear, panic, or disrupt Turkey's domestic and external security, end quote. What counts as misinformation is defined by the government under the law. In addition, the AKP has used severe gerrymandering and, in extreme cases, directly restricted opposition campaigns. Concerns over the country's democracy were brought to international front page news again this November when a constitutional crisis erupted. Kan Atalay was elected to Turkey's Grand National Assembly this year for an opposition party. Only, he ran his campaign from prison. Atalay was imprisoned in 2022 for, quote, assisting the overthrow of the government, end quote. The charges were laid against Atalay for serving as a lawyer for a group that supported the Gezi Park protests of 2013, which stretched across the country in the largest demonstration against Erdogan's administration. The protests were sparked after an Istanbul Park sit-in against a proposed development was violently dispersed by police. Atale argued in court that he should be freed from prison because he has parliamentary immunity after being elected to the legislature. Turkey's highest court, the Constitutional Court, agreed and ordered that Atale be released. But in an unprecedented move, the lower Supreme Court of Appeals, also sometimes called the Court of Cessation, not only issued an opposing order that Atale remain in custody, but filed a criminal complaint against justices on the Constitutional Court that had sided with Atale. Erdogan weighed in on November 10th. Appearing to side with the lower court against Atale, Erdogan said the constitutional court was wrong and that the country needed a new constitution to settle the dispute. 
Erdogan has suggested Turkey should get a new constitution in the past, and it remains to be seen how seriously he will pursue his idea this time around. <sighs> All right. Now with that short summary of the many complex issues facing Turkey now out of the way, we turn to our guest interviews. Hello folks and welcome to Pindrop World News. I'm AJ Camacho and I'm speaking right now with Mart Morel. He is a professor of political science and international relations at Sarancı University where he specializes in Turkish politics as well as comparative politics and polarization in countries among many other particular areas. Professor Morel, thank you very much for joining Pindrop today. Thank you for the kind invitation, it's a pleasure. You know, of course, Erdogan won this election. Uh, and it appears that although we might not call it a fair election, that the votes were genuinely uh, counted in the way that they were cast. Something that was considered his Achilles heel, though, heading into this election, was the economy. And a lot of international economists blame Erdogan for the economy being as it is, that he has historically been against interest rates, uh, for partially for reasons of faith, partially for reasons of trying to promote exports. Uh, my first question regarding the economy is more of a political one. In light of what most economists would consider a, a mild crisis happening in, in the Turkish economy, how does the incumbent president hold on to power? That's a great question. So, um, um, to be perfectly honest, uh, I don't know the answer, and I, I don't think anybody right now actually knows the answer. I mean, we did... Uh, two surveys before the uh, before the elections. I am uh, one of the co-principal investigators of the Turkish uh, election study. And in addition to that, uh, as part of another project, I did another survey. I mean, one common finding in both of them, both were, um, you know, for representative of the Turkish uh, voting eligible population, uh, the samples, and uh, they were conducted face to face and, and shortly before the election. So one common theme was that uh, roughly seven out of 10 uh, Turkish voters were actually uh, uh, reporting economy uh, or in an economic issue, mostly uh, their, their decrease in purchasing power uh, or the increase in inflation rate as uh, the most important problem uh, Turkey had been facing uh, in the last year preceding the election. However, when you ask, I mean, why do people actually uh, still vote for uh, President Erdogan? That's a different question because, um, yes, the, the, the facts actually show that the inflation uh, has been increasing, right? I mean, the Turkish lira has been depreciating. Uh, however, do everybody, uh, do all the voters actually uh, see this from the same perspective based on the facts i don't think so i mean so um you are in the us right if i'm not mistaken and, and That's uh, which which means you are used to uh reading about those so-called ultimate facts um so uh, we are living in this world where actually people's uh flow of information can be uh i'll say uh inter wind by a lot of different factors, right, including the social media. And uh, in Turkey, the, the media channels, the conventional media I'm talking about, are, is, is uh, equally polarized, which means, I mean, half of the channels, even more, uh, are basically uh, reporting the news from the perspective of the incumbent government and the other half, or maybe even uh, much fewer, a couple of TV channels are actually reporting that from the perspective of the opposition. And so, and people uh, tend to self-select themselves into the viewership of those, uh, you know, biased, uh, you know, uh, media, I'll say, blocks uh, that are slanted towards either the incumbent or the opposition, which in, in turn uh, makes them actually uh, somehow filter those information uh, in the way that they would like to hear. Uh, a lot of people actually uh, are not taking into account uh, policies when it comes to voting. Rather, uh, they actually vote in line with their uh, long-standing partisan identities. And in a, in a country like Turkey, as polarized as Turkey, and there aren't many, uh, to be perfectly honest, um, people actually uh, do not even take into account those policy failures. Instead, they simply vote for who they sided with in the previous elections. And there is a very low level of volatility. There's a uh, very low level of vote transition between the opposition and the incumbent. 
it's it's fascinating to talk to someone uh, like you who's been able to see a lot of this um, this polling data in Turkey. Oftentimes, you you don't get that, and who has um, you know dedicated your academic career to studying this polarization issue, not just in Turkey but um, across the world. And I do want to eventually ask you a question about polarization more broadly. But before we get to that, one more question on on Turkey specifically um, is is this issue of uh, the Kurds, as well as the PKK, one of those issues that is so polarized. And I ask because when uh, I saw a lot of American or Turkish-American political commentators talking about why Erdogan won, a lot of them suggested it came down to Kılıç Thorolu being willing to accept support from the HDP, HDP and Erdogan saying that this support from the Kurds also involved support from terrorist groups and that that might have soured the opinion of some Turks. Does that opinion reflect um, what you have seen? Is the issue of the PKK and greater uh, Kurdish cultural autonomy something that most Turks in cities like Istanbul care about? Or is it really a more distant issue? Um, to be perfectly honest, if, if you talk about the 2023 elections, I mean, this uh, terrorism in Turkey, I mean, broadly speaking, or uh, the, the what we call the Kurdish issue, uh, was not among the most important uh, problems. Uh, that was the most important problem, for instance, if you think of the 2015 November elections. Uh, because uh, in between the June and November elections in 2015, I mean, there were a lot of terrorist attacks. I mean, there was basically an ongoing uh, I mean, a series of incidences uh, taking place in the southeastern and eastern parts of Turkey. But I mean, the PKK attacks is not as common. Um, I mean, the uh, people's sense of, uh, you know, of, uh, insecurity uh, was not the driving force of the 2023. Of course, I mean, this rhetoric that uh, you just mentioned, right, I mean, was, was uh, commonly used by President Erdogan in his, uh, I mean, during his election campaign and in the meetings. But uh, what actually uh, mattered to the voters uh, was not uh, the, the if you ask my honest opinion, I mean, the salience of the issue, but uh, HDP implicitly, uh, you know, siding with uh, the the, uh, the opposition alliance. I mean, it's not officially a part of the table of six, so it wasn't. Uh, I mean, they actually formed another alliance with the Turkish Labour Party. But uh, in the presidential election, unlike the 2018, I mean, uh, and 14, they actually did not nominate a candidate. Uh, they followed the same strategy in the 2019 local elections uh, in the uh, largest uh, cities of Turkey, in Istanbul, Ankara, and, and uh, Izmir, which actually led the opposition candidates, uh, I mean, made them win uh, the, these uh, elections, these, these mayoral elections in 2019, both in the March and in the repeat elections in June uh, 2019. So I want to bring it back to a recent paper you've uh, published with Robin Best, where after studying 19 different democracies, you concluded that, quote, citizen polarization parties, uh, follows party polarization. That is that the establishment of a political party tends to experience polarization prior to the citizens who identify with that party. In the United States, of course, right now, we feel that this polarization is at record highs and we view it in a very negative light. It's something we want to avoid. Based off of uh, all of your research, what would you suggest as things that both can be done on the governmental level and maybe even as well on an individual level to counteract the um, prejudices that can accompany polarization? As you were talking about earlier, the nature to just vote for the person who you voted for in the last election based off of their party, rather than looking at the issues. Um. To be perfectly honest, that's a question, uh, probably that's the question that I get the most. I mean, uh, I mean, for, from, uh, you know, for the audience when I actually talk about polarization, right? I mean, what's the way to contract that? 
I mean, uh, there, there are studies uh, in the US mostly uh, that are actually uh, working to find a way, right? I mean, people uh, are made to play games. I mean, to actually uh, split the, the pie, right? I mean, share the money. I mean, they are actually being exposed to, uh, you know, people's attitudes, I mean, uh, or people's uh, sayings from the other camp. And once they're actually introduced to uh, a more heterogeneous group, right? They actually start apparently, according to the research, they actually start to uh, think less unfavorably about the other group, right? I mean, so that's basically the exposure brings uh, some sort of an understanding. Um, on the other hand, uh, in Turkey, uh, there are a couple of experts, I mean, from, from Istanbul University, uh, who have been actually experimenting with these uh, different methods to, uh, to decrease polarization. Uh, what they actually specifically focus on is affective polarization. That is a combination of your positive feelings towards your own party and your fellow partisans and your negative feelings, even hatred, right, sometimes uh, towards the other people. And uh, when you compare Turkey to the U.S., we actually see that the ideological polarization in Turkey is way higher than that in the U.S. But when it comes to affective polarization, right, uh, which makes those, uh, you know, far-right groups to even invade the, the House, I mean, after the election. Now, think about that. Now, we are actually talking about uh, an individual's own attitude. And so when we're starting to talk about that, uh, this is not something that, uh, in my view, I mean, uh, you can easily fix because right now um, th those feelings, those attitudes are cemented, right, solidified. And, and uh, it would take probably uh, an equal amount of time to actually revert the polarization, which would require uh, basically not the effort of only one camp, but both camps. However, polarization is often uh, argued uh, to, I mean, as a concept, right? I mean, to, uh, that has uh, detrimental consequences for, uh, for democracy. Yes, it might be. I, I, I do not argue against them, but it also has positive consequences. One of them is basically increasing political participation, right? So, um, and the other one, as you just suggested, uh, it basically decreases uh, vote transitions, electoral volatility. So, if you are a party leader, if you are uh, a party elite, right? I mean, would you actually try to decrease that? If you know that it works in your favor, you can actually consolidate your constituents, you can actually make them, uh, you know, turn out, mobilize them, encourage them. So uh, if you think of that from that perspective in the US, right, I mean, a lot of uh, experts have been suggesting that Democrats uh, do not move that much from the center, right? I mean, they have been more or less staying in the same position uh, for the last uh, 10 to 20 years. But Republicans are moving steadily to the right, becoming more and more conservative. The same thing we observe in Turkey. I mean, uh, AKP has been actually moving towards the right, becoming more and more conservative every day, but CHP doesn't move that much. Uh, on the other hand, during the election campaign, we actually saw the presidential candidate uh, of the opposition bloc, the leader of uh, CHP at the time, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, doing a hard side that was basically targeting the polarization in the country. On the other hand, if the other camp has been actually uh, pumping polarization, then as we suggested in that article, actually their voters at least would follow suit. Which means, I mean, basically both camps should come together. And in a polarized environment, what's the likelihood of that, right? Basically, you cannot even agree on a budget. In Turkey, every time the opposition actually brings a, uh, a policy proposal to the, uh, I mean, to, to the Grand uh, Assembly, the opposition, together, all of them, actually vote against that. The same applies to the policy proposals coming from the opposition. The same thing is, can be observed in the U.S., right? So the, the, the members of the Congress from two different uh, parties are becoming more and more homogeneous and equally distant from the other. So... What is the likelihood that they would actually together agree on, uh, I'll say, switching more to a consensual style of politics? So, to be perfectly honest, I don't see that as likely. Um, it would require actually both teams' efforts. And then, uh, despite the scholarly research showing that this can be uh, maintained or, or uh, made possible, right? I mean, towards uh, certain, uh, you know, interventions. Uh, I'm afraid those actually work in the laboratory environment, uh, but not necessarily in the real world. Also.
and and uh, it is also a super costly thing. I mean, to do a basic to talk to every single voter and try to uh, convince them that the other group is not their enemy, but basically their fellow citizens. Um, so uh, in that article that uh, I quoted with uh, Robin Bass from SUNY Binghamton University, uh, what we were studying was. Uh, actually a very important problem because according to the very idea of representative democracy, right? I mean, the, the, the ideal democracy, basically the, the represented us voters uh, are represented by the representatives. And the, mm -hmm. the role of the representatives is, I mean, their name comes from that, is to represent our interests, right? I mean, what we, what we demand from politics. But if parties move first and citizens uh, basically follow suit. It, it simply means that parties or political actors in general, right, can actually create that demand in the first place. So that is the risky part about polarization and, and that strategy that I mentioned, right? I mean, if they actually see that it works in their favor, what would actually impede them from, from uh, further polarizing uh, the country, right? I mean, if they actually can convince their leaders, I'm sorry, their, their voters, their constituents, to become more and more polarized once they move away from the moderate centrist position. And we actually see implications of that in Turkey and in the US, according to, I'll say, half of the American politics scholars studying polarization. The other half simply argues that, look, there are still a lot of moderate centrists, and then there is no such thing as culture war. But I mean, you keep seeing an increase in turnout, you keep actually seeing, uh, you know, agreement becoming less and less uh, frequent, right? I mean, among uh, different partisans, and you keep seeing the same, uh, same figures come from, uh, you know, representative surveys actually showing that, I mean, people actually have more and more negative feelings towards the uh, you know the members of the uh, the other bloc the opposition were right that actually makes uh, the US I mean top in the list of the countries I mean part of the comparative study of electoral systems and cross-national survey initiative uh, in terms of effective polarization only one country actually has higher scores we didn't actually submit the data yet but I mean Turkey as of 2023 actually uh, will top the list so uh, that should basically uh, give you some idea about you know what you should expect from politics in uh, Turkey especially considering the fact that I mean most of your audience actually comes from the US who are well accustomed to uh, what it is like, right? I mean, living uh, in a country like that. The absolutely fascinating. Political polarization, of course, such an important topic, not just in the United States, but in Turkey and most of the world. And it's always great to talk to someone like you to provide a little bit more of that context for how it's like in different countries and how there can be arguably different types of polarization and positive and negative implications of those various types. So thank you for providing us with that context. Uh, professor Mathmoral is a professor, of course, at Savanchi University in political science, international relations, where he specializes in Turkish politics, as well as political polarization, among other areas. Professor Morrell, thank you very much for joining Pindrop today. Well, thank you very much for the kind invitation. Again, it was my pleasure. Hello, folks, and welcome to Pindrop World News. I'm speaking right now with Professor Bark Essen. He is a professor of international relations and political science at Savanchi University, and he has written for publications like Democracy Paradox and Just Security. Professor Essen, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I, I want to start with something that's not getting a lot of coverage in the Western media, but seems potentially very important. Um, this is what some are calling a, co a constitutional crisis. Uh, last week, the Constitutional Court and the Supreme Court of Appeals, aka the Court of Cessation, uh, butted heads over the release of an elected member of parliament who is currently in prison. Um, President Erdogan, of course, weighed in, suggesting that there should be a new constitution, not something that is new among his policy proposals. What is the, the latest in, in the developments here? Well, the latest is that, as you already mentioned in your question, uh, the Constitutional Court has decided to uh, release Janatalai, who's a human rights lawyer uh, arrested on the charge of inciting revolt uh, in Turkey during the Gezi Park protests. Of course, that was a fictitious uh, charge to uh, begin with, but um, his legal process has not yet been completed. But Janatalai uh, uh, got elected as an MP from Hatay, um, a province in the southern part 
part of Turkey. And according to the Turkish law, he needs to be uh, released because he's now a legislator uh, representing a province uh, in the parliament. And that's why Turkish Constitutional Court has uh, given the uh, has, has made this uh, judgment. And as the Constitutional Court is the highest judicial organ in the country, uh, its decisions need to be um, 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 respected uh, by the lower courts. But Court of Cassation has refused to endorse that decision and actually gave um, um, a completely different uh, verdict on this particular case and refused to release Janatalai, but more importantly, um, uh, uh, basically challenged the Constitutional Court. And it seems that members of the ruling coalition, particularly uh, coming from uh, you know members of the uh, Turkish ultranationalist party, has really very vocally criticized the Turkish Constitutional Court, challenged even the right of this judicial body to take such a decision. And because President Erdogan seems to have uh, sided uh, with uh, with this radical uh, approach, uh, we now have a constitutional crisis and that the decisions of the Turkish Constitutional Court are not being implemented, which of course violates the constitution uh, itself. It's not really clear how the dispute will be uh, resolved. Uh, there are some politicians from the ranks of the uh, ruling coalition asking for either limiting the jurisdiction of the Turkish Constitutional Court or completely dismantling that uh, body, uh, which is, of course, very uh, concerning. And at the end of the day, this is really related to uh, the desire of uh, ruling elites to govern the country without any kind of checks and balances. And in Turkey, unfortunately, these uh, institutional checks and balances have already been eroded quite significantly. And one of the last vestiges of that kind of, of, of accountability seems to be under uh, attack by members of the government. Um, Erdogan seemed for a while to be easing up a lot of what the, the Kurds were feeling in terms of cultural repression and such. Um, when people and reporters talk to Turkey's Kurds in the southeast, they talk about how you know, things were going good in 2013, in 2014, with the change of the letter law, they, they were feeling really good. And then in 2015, when the ceasefire broke, they started to feel that Erdogan had changed his policies. But why that change going towards everyday Kurdish people in Turkey as well? Well, you're certainly right that Erdogan adopted a different uh, approach uh, on the Kurdish question. Of course, Kurdish question is a decades-long conflict that not just Turkey, but even uh, the Ottoman Empire had uh, starting from early 19th century. So it's a very convoluted uh, problem. And uh, the previous governments uh, uh, have not necessarily incorporated Kurdish citizens into the Turkish political system. Of course, they could uh, get elected into office, but in terms of cultural rights, and even the political rights that they enjoyed, there were significant uh, restrictions. And during certain periods in 20th century, these restrictions were uh, uh, were even higher than uh, other periods. Whereas under Erdogan's watch, particularly between 2010 and 2014, during the so-called Kurdish opening or democratic opening process, um, uh, uh, there, there, there was um, a higher level of um, uh, civil liberties and political uh, freedoms uh, available to um, Kurdish citizens of the country, particularly those living in Kurdish populated southeastern provinces. But things began to change, as you mentioned, after 2014-2015. There are several reasons for this. Well, first of all, uh, I need to point out that er Erdogan's party comes from an Islamist background. And, and this party actually gets a lot of support from Kurdish conservative voters. So actually Erdogan's party has has had for many years uh, a base in that region, unlike many other uh, opposition uh, uh, parties. And I think what Erdogan wanted to do uh, was to make some basic concessions to the Kurdish political movement in exchange for um, that movement uh, accepting uh, Turkey's transition to a uh, presidential system with strong, with, you know, with limited uh, checks and balances. Basically, this is what Erdogan was was after. Uh, but of course, the Kurdish political movement did not necessarily. Um, accept this this deal and especially uh, uh, the faction within the Kurdish party led by Selahattin Demirtas uh, 
who has been in prison since 2016, uh, really challenged Erdogan's leadership. I think that was really uh, um, um, a sour moment for, for, for Erdogan. I think the other reason is that, and we saw the uh, impact of this in the June 2015 elections, by basically waging, uh, you know, by, by basically implementing this Kurdish opening process, Erdogan's party lost votes, both to MHP, uh, at the time was a rival party with the Turkish ultra-nationalist ideology, but also the Kurdish political movement started uh, expanding its vote share. And in fact, in June 2015 elections, for the first time, uh, HDP, uh, the, uh, at the time they represented the party of the Kurdish political movement, crossed the 10% electoral threshold and uh, joined the parliament. And, and so uh, Erdogan lost votes in both directions both to the Kurdish party as well as to the Turkish ultra-nationalist party, which I think signified to him that there was not really much to gain from pursuing this process because no concrete policy concessions were being made by the Kurdish movement and his party was hemorrhaging votes uh, in the elections, uh, resulted in uh, AKP losing its parliamentary majority for the first time. And after that, Erdogan changed tactics and started uh, approaching the Turkish ultra-nationalist party and eventually persuaded that party to accept um, 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 constitutional amendments that would transition Turkey to a hyper-presidential system with no checks and balances. And once uh, he got that support, there was really no need to negotiate with the, with the Kurds. But at the same time, I think one needs to mention that also PKK, uh, this separatist uh, organization using um, uh, terror tactics, uh, not just against the Turkish state, but also carrying out attacks against civilians. Um, uh, 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 this organization also intervened in the process and was, I think, not necessarily happy uh, with the electoral rise of the Kurdish uh, political movement, um, which indicated that this issue would get more uh, moderate over time. So I think also uh, maybe one could mention the Syrian civil war, uh, how it resulted in mobilization of Syrian Kurds uh, uh, across the border from uh, Turkey, uh, which worried many nationalist uh, groups in Turkey uh, that an autonomous Kurdish region will be established in Syria. Uh, conversely, it, I think, emboldened the Kurdish political movement in Turkey that there was now a real possibility of having some kind of an autonomous region uh, being established in the uh, northern part of Syria and that this region might be uh, the new base for uh, carrying out region-wide operations and that's why uh, uh, Turkey's Kurds should ask for more. So I think there were a number of um, uh, uh, developments in both domestic politics as well as regional politics that empowered hardliners who did not want uh, a, a deal and also weakened uh, the incentives of uh, anyone, particularly from the ruling party, uh, seeking some kind of a democratic uh, solution to this crisis. I want, I want to turn to foreign policy briefly because... One of the big reasons Turkey has been in the headlines so much in the United States is Erdogan's approach as a member of NATO, Erdogan's approach towards the Israel-Hamas war as we're seeing it. Uh, in short, you know, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk from the nation's founding started this move that was very much going towards the West. And arguably, it's the AK party that really broke with that in a lot of ways, to the point where Erdogan now says that he trusts the West as much as he trusts Putin. So my fundamental question is why? Is um, I think both factors have uh, played a role, and, and you're right to suggest that Erdogan uh, ended up significantly revising Turkish foreign policy, especially over the past decade. And um, prior to uh, his party's uh, rise to power, Turkish foreign policy was not only pro-West, you know, joining NATO, trying to become a member of European Union, uh, being part of a Council of Europe, uh, but also pursued status quo uh, uh, policies of non-interventionism, uh, particularly in the Middle East, whereas, of course, Erdogan is now not only contemplating uh, with um, um, establishing strong ties to various authoritarian regimes in the East, particularly China and Russia, but uh, especially in the aftermath of the Arab Spring, uh, he uh, promoted a very activist, revisionist foreign policy that tried to intervene in the domestic politics of various countries in the uh, region, which I think uh, in the end uh, backfired. 
um, there are many reasons for Erdogan to really pursue that. I think um, yeah, you're, you, I, I think the public opinion has shifted to a certain extent. This is uh, the public opinion uh, is a lot more um, um, West uh, Western skeptic at this point uh, than it was say twenty or uh, thirty years ago. I think there are also uh, several. Uh, uh, factors uh, owing to Erdogan's own personal ideology, uh, the Islamist origins of his government uh, that may really uh, uh, explain uh, these uh, uh, these shifts. Uh, because I think the sort of foreign policy that Erdogan is pursuing is very similar to the populist uh, uh, revisionist foreign policy that we see in, in other parts of the world, from Duterte in Philippines to Viktor Orban in Hungary uh, to um, um, Hugo Chavez and, and Maduro uh, in Venezuela, um, as, as well as several other populist leaders, have all challenged um, Western-led liberal institutions trying to carve out an autonomous space for their regions, and um, um, and and they don't like the fact that um, the democratic erosion that they're pushing for in their respective countries are being challenged by these uh, liberal um, uh, international uh, institutions. I think these authoritarian uh, leaders, and I can certainly say this for Erdogan, feel at more ease. Uh, with these other authoritarian regimes. And, of course, uh, Erdogan can easily um, create a more bilateral personal relationship with uh, Putin and gain concessions from him and vice versa than, of course, to deal with uh, strongly institutionalized foreign policies of various um, uh, Western uh, governments. So I think there are a number of reasons why Erdogan is really headed in that direction. And I could actually uh, sort of turn your question upside down and actually suggest that because of Turkey's strong economic ties to the West, Erdogan could actually not completely dismantle Turkey's uh, um, relationship to Western countries, that he could not pull out of NATO. Uh, he s still cannot uh, fully challenge the U.S. and somehow still needs to deal with the, with the West. Um, I think some other leader under different circumstances would have even uh, gone further. But because of the fact that Turkey is, a, uh, is not a resource-rich country, and still really relies on international trade and tourism. Um, both sectors, uh, West has uh, still more of a dominance than uh, Eastern countries. Uh, Erdogan needs to follow a very delicate sort of position. And so that's why usually he has these populist outbursts that he hopes uh, uh, bring him votes in the uh, domestic arena, but when it comes to the implementation of, of, of uh, foreign policy, um, at the end of the day, he retracts, uh, he retreats. Uh, he does not completely defy uh, institutions. And I think uh, Swedish membership to NATO is a good example. Yes, he has postponed uh, the um, uh, approval process for more than a year, uh, but um, um, uh, now uh, it is going to be discussed in, in the Turkish parliament within a week and most likely will be uh, uh, approved. So there is a limit as to how much uh, Erdogan is challenging uh, the West. I, I want to ask a final question, speaking of deliberalization. Uh, our a political commentator here in the United States at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, Sonar Chaptai, uh, when he was interviewed prior to the election results, he said that if Erdogan won this election, that Turkey would become a complete autocracy and that educated Turks and youth will flee the country. Um, you yourself are an educated Turk. You're relatively young, and as a professor, you interact with a lot of young people. Um, do you think that his assessment of what will happen is exaggerated, on point, or something else? Well, I would probably say it's somewhere uh, in between because, um, you know, I've been hearing these um, uh, these views for years now and Turkey uh, does have an electoral authoritarian regime. There is no question about that. Uh, we have, uh, you know, our elections are neither free nor fair. And so that's why uh, election results should not render any kind of democratic legitimacy to, uh, to Erdogan. But uh, the electoral authoritarian system has retained its competitiveness. Uh, opposition parties were quite 
quite vibrant uh, when you look at their performance over the last decade. Uh, Erdogan's party has not secured parliamentary majority in three out of the last four parliamentary elections. So we're not looking at a party that dominates the electoral arena. And in fact, his party has lost votes over the uh, years uh, and is now not even getting more than 35% of the vote share. And it's only thanks to um, the transition to a presidential system, um, which, uh, uh, which, which basically got rid of the vote of no confidence and the support that he has from other right-wing parties that um, uh, his party can retain parliamentary majority. So I'm not really sure if Turkey is going to slide back to a complete autocracy. Uh, I think the electoral authoritarian regime uh, will survive. I think that regime is going to have some kind of competitiveness. But of course, the longer that Erdogan stays and the more elections that he wins, even by a very close margin, uh, that is going to empower him and that is going to make it more difficult to come out of this uh, system. So I'm under no illusion that Turkey uh, is going to democratize any soon, uh, anytime soon. But I don't think that Turkey is going to turn into a fully fledged uh, autocratic uh, system. Uh, so I, I, I fall somewhere in between. I still classify the Turkish political system as competitive authoritarian. If the ruling party wins the upcoming local elections in March 2024, uh, we're not going to have any other election for the next four years. And we may probably see uh, a continuation of the autocratization process, but I don't think that it's going to turn into a fully fledged autocracy. As for young people leaving, yes, uh, that is certainly a major problem that we have. Uh, we have systematic brain drain, uh, whereas especially with regards to young generations, even people who are younger than me, if they are educated, if they do have access to some educational uh, opportunities or job offers, they try to leave the country. And unfortunately, this has really speeded up, that this, this process has really accelerated over the last five years, and I think it's going to continue. So there, I do have a rather more pessimistic take. Uh, but considering the fact that Erdogan is an aging authoritarian leader and there seems to be no other popular leader who can really maintain his diverse uh, coalition, the issue of succession and how long Erdogan can stay in power are going to be two very important questions, even if Erdogan's party wins the local uh, uh, elections. If the opposition wins the local elections, I think... Um, uh, the competitive authoritarian regime uh, will remain in effect and the opposition parties will have the resources to continue to uh, challenge uh, this authoritarian uh, uh, system. Um, so I, I, I fall some, somewhere in, in, in between these two different um, takes. Of course, and uh, depending on how the constitution ends up being interpreted, Erdogan might not even be able to run for uh, another election, assuming there aren't uh, amendments made. But, you know, in a competitive authoritarian system, there'll always be uh, see, uh, people seeing if there are ways around that. Yes. Uh, Professor, Professor Essen, thank you very much for joining Pintrop today. Uh, again, Bark Essen is a professor at Savanch University, professor of political science and international relations, where he specializes in Turkish politics, among other areas, and he has written for publications such as Democracy Paradox and Just Security. Professor Essen, thank you for joining Pintrop today. Thank you so much for having me. Howdy folks, it is now time for the Pin Drop panel. I'm joined as always by my great co-producers, Diego Austin. Great to be here again. And Nicholas Castillo. Also happy to be here. Uh, I figure we should start with the Kurdish question, as Martha Morrell put it. Diego, you had the privilege of being in Turkey and not just Istanbul like most of us would, but Southeast Turkey where the Kurdish population is is concentrated. Mm -hmm. Tell us, what were your big takeaways from that experience? Yeah, so the main Kurdish area I went to in Southeast Turkey was Diyarbakir, which um, already at the name of the city, you kind of get into this division because in Kurdish nationalist uh, uh, thinking it's, uh, and I guess reality, it's called um, Ahmed, that is the Kurdish name of the city, uh, which is one of the most important cities in Kurdish history. Um, and uh, Diyarbakir or Ahmed, um, it was one of the hot spots in the Turkey PKK conflict in 2015 and 2016 um, when it really picked up. Um, essentially, um, the, um, the peace process collapsed. Um, there were um, like 
big protests by pro-PKK youth throughout Diyarbakir. A lot of Kurdish mayors declared autonomy, and the Turkish military came in and pretty brutally crushed it with uh, heavy weaponry. There was a case in uh, Sisre, uh, a, a city in southeast Turkey, where 100 Kurds were uh, burned to death, in, or 130 Kurds were killed in basements, and several of them were found to have been uh, burned to death. Um, it, it seems like the, the Turkish army went into the basements and conducted several massacres. Um, so I was there in 2022, early 2022, um, and I've never seen a more militarized city in my life. Really? Yeah, and, and I you've mean, seen so much who's been <laughs> to the West Bank, uh, which although in the West Bank cities the the IDF isn't necessarily like roaming around, but. The Turkish army was in <laughs> the Avakar. Um, everywhere there's um, armored cars with mounted guns and uh, so- soldiers carrying around heavy weaponry on the bus there. So on the bus from Istanbul to like the, the city in the middle, Akshare, you're not going through any contested areas. You don't get stopped. From Akshare to Gaziantep along the Syrian border, you get stopped by the police. From Gaziantep to Diyarbakir, you get stopped by like three buff Turkish guys wearing balaclavas <laughs> and carrying like assault rifles and your bu- bus is sitting there for a while and then they let you through. And I talked to a lot of people there being myself. Uh, I walked around through shops and people were like, Oh my God, there's like a tourist. Who is this guy? Um, and this guy goes, Hey man, you have to talk to Mehmet. I'm like, what? And then some guy just grabbed me and he's like, we go, we see Mehmet. <laughs> and I'm like, what's happening? And McVitt's like, who's this guy? And then I'm like, I'm Diego. And uh, we talked for a while, and he it shed a lot of light. He used to be a tour guide in Diyarbakir, and he mm-hmm. said because of the fighting with the PKK, they lost all their tourism um, from outside Turkey, and he hadn't really got done to be a tour guide in a while. And he talked about um, how Kurdish cultural identity was pretty suppressed. They couldn't like. Uh, really fly the Kurdish flag, for example, which you didn't see there at all, even though there was pretty strong nationalist sentiments. Um, he said, there haven't been that many tourists since the demonstrations. And I said, by demonstrations, do you mean like protests? He said, no, I mean resistance. Um, <laughs> and um, sometimes you would see PKK um, on the walls, but like scribbled out. And on the main street, there were big banners of Erdogan, which was very like, it didn't really reflect the sentiments of the people there, it seemed. It seemed like it was kind of put there by the government uh, to make things look good. So that that was my experience in uh, in Diyarbakir. Wow. But it's also a lovely city. The people there are, like, some of the most welcoming I've ever met. And if you're ever in Turkey, I very strongly recommend going to Diyarbakir. The tea is also top-notch. So <laughs> the, the sort of Kurdish historical trauma of having their autonomy infringed upon um, and their culture suppressed runs against the Turkish trauma of their country being broken up and it's hard to accommodate these. So, yeah. Also add into that though, sort of building on the concept of like the, the trauma of the threat of autonomy loss, I think to be a little tougher on the Turkish state, there's also a long running tradition of the Turks and the Turkish state, the modern Turkish state, not wanting to admit that Anatolia is a historically ethnically mixed region, right? So prior to the Armenian genocide, you have a very large Armenian community. Prior to Ataturk really expelling them in sort of a brutal fashion, you have quite a large Greek uh, community. Now, the the, the threat that the Turks would see in these communities is this was the basis under which the uh, Western powers were going to try to divide the country up. Um, In the case of Kurds, though, and I'm sure Diego knows a lot more about this than me, um, the repercussions of this were not necessarily expulsion or genocide, but this emerging idea within Turkish nationalist space that continues to this day that Kurds are in fact sort of the, the, the term is mountain Turks, yeah. that they're sort of a confused yeah. subgroup of Turks who have uh-huh. adopted a stranger in the language, but they're actually Turks. And they, they need to be brought I, I, I be, will say, and there could be a cultural assimilation um, and brought mm-hmm. back into the fold and modernized because this also well, gets mixed in with. Rhetoric modernization. about modernization, yeah. to be modern is to be homogenous. I, I, I would highly recommend um, as well, I want to say his name was Gokelp, who is a, was a Turkish sociologist at the time. He kind of started a lot of this notion around this yeah. Turkish idea of what creates a nation. Um, I will say that genocide is also an element in this, because that is essentially what happened in the 20s and 30s. Um, basically, the the after the Treaty of Lausanne and after, um, it seemed... Um, the Kurds did participate in the, the Turkish War of Independence, and it seemed like they were supposed to get more autonomy. Mm. And when it became clear this wasn't going to happen, there were a bunch of Kurdish rebellions, the the most famous ones being in Dersim and Ararat. And these were followed by horrific massacres, which are, I think, um, like gen- they were genocidal. Uh, so the, And they also had 
um like death squads that were pretty brutal um called uh jtem j-i-t-e-m like th- that even parts of like the army didn't know about so it's yeah like very heavy stuff I'm, I'm sure we'll get in the opportunity to elaborate a lot more on the kurdish situation beyond even the borders within turkey in the future but uh i mean diego you'll doubtlessly make an episode about yeah. the group uh, the group as a whole but i wanted to turn to erdogan uh let's talk about foreign policy first uh nick i know you probably have a, a bit more than two cents about this um We've just recently seen the uh, elimination of a in what was de facto an independent state in Nagorno-Karabakh, and uh, Azerbaijan has taken control. They're obviously a Turkish ally. Uh, what is in it for Turkey in this situation, and what do you make of the situation as a whole with Azerbaijan taking control of the area? Uh, sure. There's a couple different ways you could uh, read that situation. I actually, in my my sort of day job slash internship, I do a lot of work on this. Um, the Azerbaijan element is that Azerbaijan is the emerging center of gravity in the South Caucasus. Mm. 10 million people in terms of population, very, very large oil sector, uh, big military power, um, regionally speaking. Um, so that's one element of this. Azerbaijan can you know, force its way into a separatist region and, and really quite easily just, you know, uh, in less than a day, yeah. there was a ceasefire. Mm. And the autonomous administration of this um, long-running Armenian separatist project voluntarily disbanded because they saw that it, this was a completely uh, pointless fight that they could not win. Uh, so that's the Azeri element. They're obviously very happy about it. The, the Azeris have wanted the territory back for a long time. The Turkish element um, is that they're able to back their ally. Um, there are very, very strong relations between Azerbaijan and Turkey. I mean, this sort of mostly originates on a cultural level, um, despite the fact that the Turks are Sunni Muslims predominantly and the uh, Azerbaijanis are Shia Muslim. Um, their language is almost entirely mutually intelligible. I, I have a close Azerbaijani friend who can understand Turkish quite easily. Um, there's a great sense that these two people just fundamentally understand each other, mm-hmm. despite having very different experiences of the 20th century. Um, there's a popular phrase to refer to the two countries, two eyes, one head. Um, and you have, and you've seen that this isn't just rhetoric and this isn't just culture. Um, there are very frequent and very close um, meetings and relations between right. Erdogan and President uh, Ilham Aliyev, uh, the dictator of Azerbaijan. So the uh, Azerbaijan, uh, Turkey is able to help its ally, giving them military gear, right. giving them political cover internationally. Um, in the ongoing talks, normalization between Armenia proper and Azerbaijan, because technically these two countries have been in a constant state of war since mm-hmm. independence. Um, Turkey is seen as the go-to ally for Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan has walked out of negotiations because Turkey wasn't in the room, but European countries were. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that Turkey can help its ally, protect them politically, give them military aid, that's huge. Then there's the economic component of this. Um, the economic component is that Azerbaijan is currently building a transit corridor that will connect um mainland Azerbaijan by way of Iran to an uh, exclave of the country mm-hmm. called Nakhchivan, which actually borders Turkey. That's all a lot of very inside baseball terminology, very in the weeds. The takeaway, though, is that that connects physically mainland Azerbaijan to Turkey. Right. Meaning that goods, and more important than goods, oil can go from Baku, from Azerbaijan, through Turkey and onward to Europe, which is kind of a huge deal economically, especially right. for Azerbaijan, who wants to sell its oil in the West, and especially for the Europeans, who want to buy um, oil without Russian stinkers on the barrels. Right. Oil is the goodest of the goods, so often the case. A, a big foreign policy win for the Turks, I'd say. Mm. I will also say that when I was in Turkey, it seems uh, there, there, there were certain like uh, flags that were allowed to go up other than the Turkish flag, and one of those was the Azeri flag, and one mm. of those was the Uyghur flag. So. Uh, Turkish Cyprus, too. Yeah, I, and when I say allowed, I don't know about if it's like legal or but it more just like the unwritten rule, it seems. Right, right. You know? um, uh, on foreign policy, I'll sort of add that Erdogan is interesting because he strikes me as someone who's running for the Nobel Peace Prize, oftentimes. And I don't know that that is as much the case with his efforts in the Azeri area, I think especially with Putin's invasion of Ukraine, saying that even though he is a NATO member, he trusts Putin as much as he trusts the West. Ironic, given that he's not, he's supposed to be an ally of, of NATO uh, in promoting this grain deal that has since apparently fallen through. And I think we saw similarly at the start of the Israel-Hamas war, similar rhetoric in terms of he would be leading these negotiations to get hostages released. We've yet to see any results from that. Although it is curious that he's really shifted his tone on that in the past few weeks, seeming to take a much, much harder stance against Israel, calling it a terror state and defending Hamas as not terrorists, but Mujahideen fighting for their country. 
um, in the movie The Big Shorts, um, Ryan Gosling. Great movie. He says, um, he says he's so transparent in his self-interest that I actually respect him. Right. And that is how I feel about Erdogan when I see his foreign policy, the way he was able to hold all of NATO hostage over the PKK issue with uh, Finland and Sweden. Um, the and way he even held Sweden, ho uh, Finland hostage, even though they weren't really doing anything. Yeah. It was mostly just and Sweden here. The way he's, um, and keep in mind, this was like as the election was approaching, um, the way he is able to play both sides in the Russia-Ukraine war, um, this sort of thing, you know, is, is sort of rhetoric on Israel-Hamas. It's like, like from a moral standpoint, sure, I don't agree with it, but from like, it's like a, a kind of a strategic standpoint, I'm like, respect, well, you know? I, I think Erdogan wants Turkey to be sort of an independent actor on the world stage. Yeah. He doesn't want Turkey to be another NATO country. He, I mean, the, the accusations are maybe not accusations because that's a normative, um, you know, framing. Uh, people often talk about neo-Ottomanism, that, mm -hmm. you know, the, the idea being that Turkey was once a great state, a great world power, and that Erdogan at the very least wants it to be a great regional power once again, right? Right. And he doesn't want that to be subsumed by a broader Western policy. He wants um, to have a very independent foreign policy. You, um, you, his, get, you get this yeah. kind of unique aspect of Erdogan where he's someone who acts a lot like a dictator in the way that you get this, I mean, kind of like you just said, he... It really feels like a lot of the decisions he makes are not being malicious. They're genuinely his belief on how to best serve himself and how to best serve the country. Equally, he does have this aspect of he is still subject to what are apparently elections that he could theoretically lose. The recent election results were so close, it doesn't seem like they're fabricating votes, really. So he has this interesting tightrope where you see these moments where you feel like he's being driven by a genuine uh, religious belief or genuine selfishness, um, and also and also moments where he really does pander to the Turkish population. Well, I mean, there's a growing conservative movement within Turkey. Mm -hmm. We think of Turkey in the 20th century as very, very secular, part of this modernizing, westernizing drive by Ataturk. Uh, Erdogan is taking it in a different direction, and it's a reflective of something real in Turkey. You know. Um, he, he's been interested in this in a long time. He made it, you know, easier for college students at public universities to wear hijab. Yeah. He's, you know, put a lot more emphasis on advocating on behalf of the Palestinians in Gaza, but also on behalf of sort of uh, Muslims and Arabs in Europe. Mm -hmm. You know, he had very strident rhetoric uh, against France's president, Emmanuel Macron, uh, a, a little while ago for what he saw as France's sort of Islamophobic right. um, issues, which is an, a whole can of worms in and of itself. But I think that Erdogan, you know, has a genuine belief about what it is to be a Turk. He has a, a genuine vision of Turkish identity. And it's not the traditional one. It's conservative. No, it's, it's, it's Muslim. It's very different and it's, from Ataturk. And it's interested also not, it, the, the direction it leads isn't always westward, which mm -hmm. was Ataturk's position. Right, right. You know, if you think about the Ottoman Empire, yeah, it had territory in Europe. It also comprised what is today's Israel, Palestine, and the rest of the Arab world. Yeah. In, in a real sense, it is no longer uh, Ataturk's Turkey. It's Erdogan's Turkey. I think bits of Ataturk's Turkey so. remain. No, it does. But I think in a real sense, when you look at it today, um, Erdogan's affected it just about as much, perhaps even more. Easy to say because he's the current president, but he really has made a massive shift. Also in just the notion in the, the Turkish nationalism and what that means. Righty, folks. That does it. We don't have any more time to continue this panel, unfortunately, for this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. And it's going to be time to spin the globe. And our pin has dropped on Iran. Although not just Iran, because we've covered that country before but also Syria and Lebanon and Palestine, because we're going to be covering Iran's axis of resistance, an alliance it has created to counter Israel and other Western forces. So make sure to check your podcast app or YouTube in the last week of November to hear the latest news, insights, and analysis surrounding Iran's axis of resistance. If you want to make sure new episodes of Pindrop are downloaded to your device automatically, make sure to follow or subscribe on your podcast app of choice, or subscribe and ding the bell if you watch on YouTube. Our guests today were Burke Essen and Mart Morrill. I am AJ Camacho, the chief producer of today's episode, and Diego Austin and Nicholas Castillo are my co-producers. Pindrop World's News was created by Ian Kearns. Thank you.